Have you ever been on the expressway, driving along at whatever you're driving, your mind wanders, you're just kind of on autopilot, you're not thinking, until you look and glance to the right and you see a state trooper on the side of the median. And then your eyes immediately go where? To the speedometer. And you realize you're going 20 miles an hour over the speed limit and you're like, <gasps> and like all, everything breaks loose. And you're looking in the mirror and you're wondering, Lord, don't let him turn his lights on. Don't let him pull out. Don't let him get behind me. Make me invisible. I hope and pray he didn't see me. And your heart is pounding out of its chest, your blood pressure. Have you been there? You know what I'm talking about. And you're hoping and praying 10 to 15 seconds of the worst time in your life. Then you look up in the mirror. There's no lights. (laughs) There's no trooper. Thank God. Thank you, God. And all of a sudden, you're at the throne room of grace, and you're praying your heart out like you've never thanked God before. And then you decide, you know, I'm not doing that again. I set cruise control, so I don't do that again. Amen. Amen. (laughs) 10 to 15 minutes later, some bozo whizzes by you. He's going at least 20, if not 30 miles over the speed limit. And what are you thinking? Where's a cop when you need one? That jerk deserves a ticket, right? Five minutes later, as you drive by, you see that car pulled over. (laughs) There's a state trooper giving a ticket, and you're like, yes, justice has been served. That guy so deserved a ticket. Oh, come on, don't tell me I'm the only one that does that. (laughs) Isn't it interesting how easy it is for us to want mercy and and grace and forgiveness when we've messed up? But how swift we want that justice for anyone who hurts us or violates our rights. Amen? Mm. We navigate that tension so very, very poorly, don't we? And yet that's the tension we navigate each and every day. The only person who has ever balanced mercy, justice, and forgiveness so well is our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been in a sermon series called The Essentials, Why Truth Matters. And we have been looking through the Apostles' Creed, a creed that just uh, documents for us the essentials of our Christian faith. It puts into very clear and concise and easy-to-remember snippets the tenets of our Christian faith. And we've been studying that over the past few weeks. And today we come to the second to last statement of truth in the creed, which simply says, I believe that my sins are forgiven. Or I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. How many of you want your sins forgiven? Yeah, amen. It's foundational. It's something that all of us need. Jesus forgives sins. We're going to be in John chapter 8 this morning. And as we look at John chapter 8, this story that's perhaps familiar to all of us, we're going to see that Jesus forgives sins. We're going to see Jesus address an issue of sin, and instead of condemning and instead of condoning, he's going to extend mercy and grace and forgiveness, all of it held in perfect balance, just like Jesus does. Jesus 
forgives sin. Now, before we dive into the passage, you'll notice that there's something in your, in your Bibles that we need to address. This passage is set off from the rest of the Bible with, with brackets. And there's perhaps a footnote or a little uh, header over this section that reads something like this. The earliest manuscripts do not include 753 to 811. So I want to address this issue before we get into the passage itself. So let me take a minute or two to do that. <clears throat> the Bible was written 1,400 years before the invention of the printing press. And so if you wanted to make copies of the original manuscripts that the authors of the New Testament had written, the only way to do that was to hand copy them over and over again. We don't have the original manuscripts that were written by the original authors of the New Testament. What we have are copies of copies of copies of copies. In fact, archaeologists have uncovered 20, over 25,000 copies of the New Testament, either in part or in whole. But when you look at them, most of the earliest manuscripts don't contain this story. This story is missing from the oldest. That's important because typically the older the manuscript, the closer to the original it most likely was. So this story is missing from the oldest. But while it's missing from almost all of the oldest, all of the newest have this story. So what's going on? Some of our early church fathers mention this story. So it's not that this story didn't exist. This story happened. This story happened in the life of Jesus. But most scholars believe that this story, while it did happen, did not get written by the Apostle John. But scholars are in agreement that this story did happen in the life of Jesus because the essence of this story is consistent with the things that we read about in other parts of the Gospels of what Jesus did. So while this story is certainly not authentic to John, this story is certainly authentic Jesus. Amen? And so with that background, we're going to dive into the story and see how Jesus forgives sin. Sin, the Bible defines sin as missing the mark. God has set the standard of holiness and no one has been able to meet that standard. No person has been able to meet God's standard of holiness. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We are all sinners in need of a savior. No one has been able to meet the standard of holiness set by God, and therefore, we are all sinners. But the good news is that there is forgiveness of our sins in Jesus Christ because Jesus forgives sins, and that's the good news. So what does forgiveness look like? I want to share with you three aspects of forgiveness that we find from this story, and the first is that forgiveness requires the awareness of guilt. Forgiveness requires the awareness of of guilt. <clears throat> I'm reading from John chapter 8, starting in verse number 2. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. 
what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Most scholars believe that this story took place just months before Jesus was crucified. And as was the custom, Jesus, whenever he was in Jerusalem, would come into the, into the city, go into the temple, and he would sit down, a crowd of people would gather, and he would teach them, and that was his natural, normal custom. This is a typical day. He's in Jerusalem, he's in the temple, he is seated, and he is teaching the people, and all of a sudden, there's a commotion, there's an interruption, some scribes and Pharisees are muscling their way through the crowd, dragging a woman, and they throw her in front of Jesus, and they accuse her of adultery. Who are scribes and Pharisees? If you've been in church long enough, you know who they are, but if you don't, scribes are the, the people responsible for studying, copying, and interpreting the law of Moses. That's their job. The Pharisees were a religious and political sect of Judaism, and they lived and they adhered to a very strict religious understanding of the law, and they were sort of like the spiritual police. And so these scribes and these Pharisees had power and influence until Jesus showed up. And they hated Jesus because Jesus had turned their power structures upside down, and so they wanted to get rid of him, and so they hatched a trap. <clears throat> and they hatched this trap that dealt with this woman that they dragged in front of Jesus and they accuse her of adultery. And notice they have caught this woman in the act of adultery and they demand that Jesus condemn her according to the law. But what's the law say? Well, the law is pretty clear. If you look at Leviticus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy 22, it's pretty clear. In fact, let me read Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. Pretty straightforward, right? If you're caught in adultery, what's the verdict? Death. Seems clear, right? So what's the trap? It's obvious in verse number six that this whole setup was a trap. <coughs> well, if Jesus agrees with the law, and he does, and he says, you're right, she's guilty, she deserves death, go ahead, stone her. What's the problem? Well, he'll be at odds with the Roman government, right? Because the Romans say that they're the only ones that can execute people the rest of the people can't, so he will be at odds with the Roman Empire. On top of that, he will lose favor with the people because this will not be showing mercy and grace. It won't, this message won't fly with the people who are sinners who have come to Jesus for forgiveness. So that's not a good option. What's the other option? The other option is he could say, well, yeah, I know the law of Moses says that, but you know, I'm, I'm in a really nice mood today. She's not guilty. She can go home. Well, that's a problem because now he's not upholding the law. Jesus said that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law so he would be contradicting himself and in front of the rest of the people, he will be despising the law of Moses. Well, that's not a good option either. This is a trap. 
And the scribes and the Pharisees think that they have cooked up this trap, this catch-22, that they have put Jesus on the horns of a dilemma that he can't get out of and that he is stuck and that they're going to finally trap him and discredit him. So what's Jesus going to do? Well, at the end of verse 6, did you notice what Jesus does? He stoops down and he begins to doodle. He begins to write on the ground. We're not sure what he wrote. Some people think he was writing the names of the accusers and their sin. Can you imagine Jesus doing that? <laughs> Uh-oh, time to go home, yeah? Uh, maybe he was writing Bible verses. But perhaps in the Old Testament, there are two instances where God wrote something. In Daniel chapter 5, when Belshazzar was having a party, the hand of God showed up and he wrote on the wall, and Daniel had to come in and interpret it, and basically what it said is, you have been weighed in the balance and have been found wanting or lacking. Maybe that's what he wrote. It would fit. But perhaps there's another scenario. Back in the book of Exodus, twice we read that God with his finger wrote onto tablets of stone. We call them what? The Ten Commandments. Maybe he was writing the Ten Commandments. Remember, one of them says, do not commit adultery. Maybe that's what he's writing. I've done all the research. I've looked high and low. Guess what the answer is? I don't know. <clears throat> I don't know. Anybody who tells you otherwise is just lying to you. No one does. We don't know what Jesus wrote. But what he did do, by stooping down and writing on the ground, he took the attention of the crowd that was on that woman and placed it on him took it off of her, and placed it on him. Isn't that like what a loving Savior would do? Put it on him. He drew the attention of the crowd. And Jesus uses this moment to show the extravagance of his grace and of his forgiveness. But before forgiveness can be extended, guilt needs to be there. The recognition that we have sinned and come short of the glory of God has to be there. That we are guilty. That sense of guilt has to be there. And you find it in this story that this woman doesn't defend herself. This woman says, no, 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 they got the wrong one. She doesn't defend herself. She doesn't make excuses. She doesn't say she's innocent. She doesn't deny it. She's guilty. She knows it. She's been caught red-handed. She's done. Conviction of sin and guilt have already blossomed in her heart. She's caught. She's guilty. And she's desperately in need of forgiveness. You know, one of our deepest fears is that our sins are going to be exposed. You know, when you and I leave home, we leave, we put on our face, we put on this facade that everything's okay, that life is good, that there's nothing wrong with us. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. Better than I deserve. Oh, you're right. We got all the answers down. Why? Because we don't want anybody to pry or ask or poke or push those buttons and uncover the fact that many of us live in sin. That many of us, our lives are not as clean, not as nice, not as wonderful as our Facebook posts would have everyone else believe. We don't want anybody to know the dirt the guilt, the shame, the stuff that we cover deep inside the recesses of the closet of our heart. We don't want anybody that deep. You guys all stay out here. I don't want anybody that close. But friends, can I just tell you, you're not alone. 
We're all there together. There is no one who is perfect. There is all, okay, the Bible says all have sinned. There is no one perfect, no not one. You are not alone. We're all in this together. We're all sinners in need of a savior. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, amen? And no matter how perfect we think we are, we're not. Forgiveness can only start once we understand that we are sinners, that we're guilty, that we need forgiveness. That's the first step in understanding and receiving the forgiveness that can only come from Jesus. Jesus forgives sins by making us aware of our guilt. And the second thing we learn is that forgiveness removes all condemnation. Forgiveness removes all condemnation. Verse number seven says, and as they continue to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. So as Jesus writes on the ground, doodles, maybe he's bored and he's doodling like some of you are. <clears throat> they pester him. They push him. Hey, did you hear us? Did you see this? What is your answer? What are you going to do? And Jesus finally stands up and says, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Okay. That sounds okay, doesn't it? And then Jesus stoops back down and he continues to write again. Why does he do that a second time? Because he wants those words that he just spoke to simmer in their heart. He wants to, to little simmering going on in their heart. Because Jesus, you know what he did? He took the law and took it to an extent that they never expected. It's as if Jesus says, you know, guys, you're right. This woman is guilty. She stands condemned under the law of Moses. You guys are right. She deserves to be stoned. So let's do something. Since you are all so interested in keeping the law of Moses, let's do that. The law of Moses says that if you are going to stone her because she's guilty, then the first stone that has to be thrown has to be thrown by an eyewitness. And that eyewitness has to be innocent of this crime, of this sin. So if you are sinless in this matter, go ahead, throw the stone. Uh-oh. <laughs> that wasn't what they thought was going to happen. And as those words simmer in their hearts, there's a problem. What's the problem? What are they thinking about? You know this is a trap from verse number six. They know this is a trap from verse number six. How do you catch someone in the act of adultery? Well, you can go house to house, peeping through the window, house to house like a peeping Tom looking for the event. Or you can know time, place, and people, which means this is a setup. Hmm. But there's a second problem with this story. Last time I checked, it takes two to tango, right? You can't have adultery with just one person, can you? Not as far as I know. I'm not a scientist or a biologist, but I know that. Where's the guy? 
Where's the dude? Maybe he was fast enough to jump out the window and run for his life. Maybe. But more likely, he's standing right there with the scribes and the Pharisees, pointing that finger, stone in hand. Maybe he's there as well. Huh, now we have a different problem, don't we? As the words of Jesus simmers in their hearts, the Bible says something interesting happened. But imagine now for just a moment that you're this woman. You've been caught. Just put yourself there. You're in the courts of the temple. You're, in, you're lying there in the ground. People are pointing their finger at you, stone in hand, accusing you of being caught in the very act of adultery. And you're waiting for that stone to come flying. What do you do? I know what I'd do. I'd be crouching, hand over my head, clenching my eyes closed, bracing myself for that first stone to come flying, wondering how much will it hurt before I black out. What do you think? Pretty close? And you hear Jesus say, he who is without sin cast the first stone. And you're like, and all of a sudden as you got your eyes closed and you're bracing yourself for that first stone to come flying, all you hear is thud and shuffling of feet. Another thud and shuffling of feet. And a couple more thuds. And more shuffling of feet. And more thuds as stones hit the ground. You're not quite sure what's going on. You're waiting to die. And all of a sudden, the man who had said, throw the first stone, stands up. And he says to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Can you imagine the confusion? Like you're caught. You're done. This is a big deal. You deserve death. Where are the stones? She looks up. She looks around. And all she sees are a pile of stones scattered around the ground. There's nobody there holding them anymore. What's going on? Can you imagine her confusion? Can you imagine her mindset? This woman caught in the very act, waiting to die, hasn't died. What's going on? And here's this man asking her, where is everyone who condemned you? All she can say is, no one. Lord, don't miss what she called him. Did you see what she called him? She didn't call him rabbi or teacher. That's what the scribes and the Pharisees called him. We have no idea if this woman knew Jesus or not. But she doesn't call him rabbi or teacher. She calls him Lord. You see, somewhere in this process of getting dragged through the streets of Jerusalem and thrown in front of this man, she came to realize there's something different about him. This isn't a normal teacher or rabbi. He's someone special. And so the work of Conviction of sin and guilt has already started in her heart, and she had repented. And so when Jesus asks her the question, she responds, No one, Lord. And then Jesus says to her, Neither do I condemn you. 
Can you imagine that? The only person qualified to throw a stone and to judge her was Jesus. And Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Wait wait a minute, Jesus. She's guilty. She was caught in the very act. She deserves to die. What do you mean you don't condemn her? How is that justice? We want justice, don't we? For everybody but ourselves. This isn't just. You see, Jesus knew that in just a few months, he would be arrested by those very same religious leaders. That he would be beaten, nailed to a cross, and that he would die for her sins. And not just for her sins, but for all our sins. Jesus knew. And so when he says, neither do I condemn you, he's taking on her sin. He's taking on her guilt, knowing that he will sacrifice his very life. Be condemned on her behalf. Be judged on her behalf. Die in her place. That's why he can say, neither do I condemn you. We all know John 3.16, don't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. You guys know that verse, right? You guys know verse 17? For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that through him he might save the world. God did not send Jesus to condemn us. God sent Jesus to save us. And so when he looks at this woman, he says, neither do I condemn you. He's forgiving her. He's relieving her of her condemnation, relieving her of her guilt, removing it all. Can I just point you back to one thing? Did you notice what Jesus called her? He called her woman. It might be that you and I look at that and say, that's so derogatory, that's so disrespectful, but it's not. You see, the only way we can translate the, he, the Greek word there is to use the word woman. It most likely means ma'am or lady in our vernacular today. When Jesus calls her a woman, it may be the first time that she was addressed properly. You see, up until this point, she'd been called every name in the book. You can imagine those names. These very scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders, they had called her sinner. They had called her wicked. They had called her adulteress. And for all of the mistakes that these religious leaders did, they did one thing right. You know what it was? They brought her to Jesus. They brought her to Jesus. Friends, there's no better place to be than at the feet of Jesus because great things happen when you come to Jesus. Amen? You may have been drug out of bed. You may have been called by your neighbor and you may be brought here. There's no better place for you to be than right here in the presence of God. And Jesus looks at this lady and calls her, woman. He forgives her. He removes her condemnation. He removes her labels. And he calls her woman. You may be here this morning and you've got names attached to you. Liar, cheater, adulterer, adulteress, 
you can add to that list whatever name may be attached to you. But if you come to Jesus and you say, Lord, here are the broken pieces of my life. Jesus says, I'll forgive you. I died on the cross for you. The wages of sin is death, but I died in your place. And if you will ask for forgiveness, I'll forgive you. I'll delete your labels. I'll delete those old names. I'll give you a new name. And we just sung it. I'll call you beloved. You'll be a beloved son. You'll be a beloved daughter. You'll be mine. Forgiveness removes condemnation. I need to go faster here. The third thing we learn is that forgiveness renews a dead life. Notice the end of verse number 11. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. These words of Jesus speak life back into this woman. She's been forgiven. Her condemnation's been removed. Her guilt has been erased. Her old labels have been replaced. She's been forgiven. And Jesus doesn't condemn her. He shows her grace and mercy and forgiveness. He's the only one who can. He's the only one who can forgive. And he's the only one through forgiveness who can give us our life back. Life. New life. But don't get this statement wrong. Don't read this backwards. It's important that we don't. Jesus did not say, go and sit no more, and then I won't condemn you. If Jesus had said that, none of us would ever satisfy that requirement. We all sin. We all come short of the glory of God. But what Jesus says is, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. She's been forgiven. She's been cleansed. She, her guilt has been removed. And now she is no longer under the power of sin. She has the power of the Spirit of God in her to go and live a life that is pleasing, a life of holiness to God who loved her and forgave her. That's what God can do. If you're like this woman today, Jesus has come. Come to me with all of your brokenness. Come to me with all of your sin. Come to me with all of your guilt. Come to me with all of your shame. Come to me with all of the garbage. You don't have to clean up before you come. Just come. And I'll forgive you. And I'll wash you. And I'll cleanse you. And I'll give you a new life. A life you didn't deserve. Because I died on the cross in your place. I paid the penalty you couldn't pay. So that I can forgive you. And I can remove that condemnation. And I can give you new life. I want to close with the story of Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. Perhaps you've heard of that story. Rosaria was a lesbian activist, a postmodernist advocate of feminism. She was a professor at Syracuse University of English, and she did everything she could to promote that kind of lifestyle in her classroom, at her university, and in her society. In 1997, she wrote a scathing article in her local newspaper attacking Promise Keepers. That created all sorts of buzz, all sorts of response. In fact, she got so much mail that she, she kept a cardboard box on either end of her desk, one for fan mail and one for hate mail. But there was one letter that she received that didn't fit with her filing system. It was a letter from a man named Ken Smith, pastor of the nearby Syracuse Presbyterian Church. That letter challenged her perspectives. It didn't attack her. It challenged her. She read it. She hated it. She threw it out. But later in the day, something prompted her to fish that letter out of the garbage and put it back on her desk. And she stared at that letter for a week because that letter demanded 
a response. That letter became the impetus, an impetus for Ken Smith to start a two-year relationship with Rosaria where he brought the church to her. In her testimony, she writes, Ken did not mock me. He engaged. So when his letter invited me to get together for dinner, I accepted. My motives at the time were straightforward. Surely this will be good for my research. But something else happened. Ken and his wife, Floyd, and I became friends. They entered my world. They met my friends. We did book exchanges. We talked openly about sexuality and politics. They did not act as if such conversations were polluting them. They did not treat me like a blank slate. When we ate together, Ken prayed in a way I have never heard pray before. His prayers were intimate, vulnerable. He repented of his sin in front of me. He thanked God for all things. Ken's God was holy and firm, yet full of mercy. And so it created in Rosaria a desire to read the Bible. And she read it initially to refute Ken's claim about who Jesus was. But between Ken's witness and the power of the truth of God's word, Rosaria didn't stand a chance. She goes on to write, One Sunday morning, I rose from the bed of my lesbian lover, and an hour later, I sat in the pew at the church. Conspicuous with my butch haircut, I had to remind myself that I came to meet God, not fit in. The image that came in like waves of me and everyone I loved suffering in hell, vomited into my consciousness and gripped me in its teeth. I fought with everything I had. I did not want this. I did not ask for this. I counted the costs, and I did not like the math on the other side of the equal sign. Then one ordinary day, I came to Jesus, open-handed and naked, in this war of worldviews, Ken was there, Floyd was there, the church that had been praying for me for years was there, Jesus triumphed. I was a broken mess. My conversion was a train wreck. I believed weakly that if Jesus could conquer death, he could make right my world. I drank tentatively at first, then passionately of the solace of the Holy Spirit. I rested in private peace then in community, and today I rest in the shelter of a covenant family where one calls me wife and many call me mother. Amen. Amen. That is what happens when you come to Jesus. All of the old labels, all of the guilt, all of the condemnation, all of the garbage, forgiven at the foot of the cross. But you got to come. You got to come. And you have to be convicted of your heart. The saddest part of this story is that these scribes and Pharisees who were guilty, who were sinners, who needed forgiveness, walked away. Friends, don't be like them. Jesus is here. He stands before you. The arms open wide. And if you will look closely, you will see nail scars in each of his hands. He did that for you. He did that for me. The penalty that I could never pay, he paid. The death that I should have died, he died. So that when I come before him with my brokenness, with my sin, with my ugliness, with all of the darkness that seems to find its way into my heart, he forgives me. He cleanses me removes my condemnation, and he calls me son. And he'll do that for you.